0: CHAPTER Eight OF RALPH THE Heir BY ANTHONY Trollope. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RALPH NEWTON'S TROUBLES July had come, the second week in July, and Ralph Newton had not as yet given any reply to that very definite proposition which had been made to him after the little dinner by Mr. Nefitt. Now the proposition was one which certainly required an answer, and all the effect which it had hitherto had upon our friend was to induce him not to include Conduit Street in any of his daily walks. It has already been said that before the offer was made to him, when he believed that Polly's fortune would be more than Mr. Neefit had been able to promise, he had determined that nothing should induce him to marry the daughter of a breeches-maker, and therefore the answer might have been easy. Nevertheless, he made no answer, but kept out of Conduit Street, and allowed the three pair of breeches to be sent home to him without trying them on. This was very wrong, for Mr. Neefit, though perhaps indelicate, had at least been generous and trusting and a definite answer should have been given before the middle of July. Troubles were coming thick upon Ralph Newton. He had borrowed a hundred pounds from Mr. Neefit, but this he had done under pressure of a letter from his brother, the parson. He owed the parson, we will not say how much, he would get fifty pounds or a hundred from the parson every now and again, giving an assurance that it should be repaid in a month or six weeks. Sometimes the promise would be kept, and sometimes not. The parson, as a bachelor, was undoubtedly a rich man. He had a living of four hundred pounds a year, and some fortune of his own, but he had tastes of his own, and was repairing the church at Peel Newton, his parish in Hampshire. It would, therefore, sometimes happen that he was driven to ask his brother for money, The hundred pounds which had been borrowed from Mr. Neefit had been sent down to Peel Newton with a mere deduction of twenty five pounds for current expenses. Twenty five pounds do not go far in current expenses in London with a man who is given to be expensive, and Ralph Newton was again in want of funds. And there were other troubles, all coming from want of money. Mr. Horsball of the Moonbeam, who was generally known in the sporting world as a man who never did ask for his money, had remarked that, as Mr. Newton's bill was now above a thousand, he should like a little cash. Mr. Newton's bill at two months for five hundred pounds would be quite satisfactory. Would Mr. Newton accept the enclosed document? Mr. Newton did accept the document, but he didn't like it. How was he to pay five hundred pounds in the beginning of September, unless indeed he got it from mr Neefit? He might raise money, no doubt, on his own interest in the Newton Priory estate, but that estate would never be his were he to die before his uncle, and he knew that assistance from the Jews on such security would ruin him altogether. Of his own property there was still a remnant left. He owned houses in London from which he still got some income, but they were mortgaged and the title-deeds not in his possession, and his own attorney made difficulties about obtaining for him a further advance. He was sitting one bright July morning in his own room in St. James Street, over a very late breakfast, with his two friends, Captain Fuchs and Captain Cox, when a little annoyance of a similar kind fell upon him a worse annoyance, indeed, than that which had come from Mr. Horsball, for Mr. Horsball had not been spiteful enough to call upon him. There came a knock at his door, and young Mr. Moggs was ushered into the room. Now Mr. Moggs was the son of Booby and Moggs, the well-known bootmakers of old Bond Street, and the boots they had made for Ralph Newton had been infinite in number, as they had also, no doubt, been excellent in make and leather. But Booby and Moggs had of late wanted money, had written many letters, for four months had not seen the face of their customer. When a gentleman is driven by his indebtedness to go to another tradesman, it is, so to say, all up with him in the way of credit there is nothing the tradesman dislikes so much as this, as he fears that the rival is going to get the ready money after he has given the credit. And yet, what is a gentleman to do when his demand for further goods at the old shop is met by a request for a little ready money? We know what Ralph Newton did at the establishment in Conduit Street, but then Mr. Neefit was a very peculiar man. Cox had just lighted his cigar, and Fuchs was filling his pipe when Ontario Moggs entered the room. This rival in the regards of Polly Neefit was not at that time personally known to Ralph Newton, but the name as mentioned by his servant was painfully familiar to him. "'Oh, Mr. Moggs, ah, uh, it's your father, I suppose, that I know. Sit down, Mr. Moggs.' "'Will you have a cup of tea, or perhaps a glass of brandy? "'Take a cigar, Mr. Moggs.' "'But Mr. Moggs declined all refreshment for the body. "'He was a tall, thin young man with long, straggling hair, "'a fierce eye, very thick lips, and a flat nose, "'a nose which seemed to be all nostril, "'and then below his mouth was a tuft of beard which he called an imperial.' It was the glory of Ontario Moggs to be a politician. It was his ambition to be a poet. It was his nature to be a lover. It was his disgrace to be a bootmaker. Dependent on a stern father and aware that it behoved him to earn his bread, he could not but obey, but he groaned under this servitude in trade, and was only happy when speaking at his debating club, held at the Cheshire Cheese or when basking in the beauty of Polly Neefit. He was great upon strikes, in reference to which perilous subject he was altogether at variance with his father, who worshipped capital and hated unions. Ontario held horrible ideas about cooperative associations, the rights of labor, and the welfare of the masses. Thrice he had quarreled with his father, but the old man loved his son, and though he was stern, strove to bring the young man into the ways of money-making. How was he to think of marrying Polly Neefit, as to the expediency of which arrangement Mr. Moggs, Sr. quite agreed with Mr. Moggs, Jr., unless he would show himself to be a man of business? Did he think that old Neefit would give his money to be wasted upon strikes? Ontario, who was as honest a fool as ever lived, told his father that he didn't care a straw for Neefit's money. Then Moggs the father had made a plunge against the counter with his sharp-pointed shoemaker's knife, which he always held in his hand, that had almost been fatal to himself, for the knife broke at the thrust and the fragment cut his wrist. At this time there was no real booby, and the firm was in truth Moggs and Moggs only. The great question was whether it should become Moggs and Son but what tradesman would take a partner into his firm who began by declaring that strikes were the safeguards of trade, and that he, the proposed partner, did not personally care for money? Nevertheless, old Moggs persevered, and Ontario, alive to the fact that it was his duty to be a bootmaker, was now attempting to carry on his business in the manner laid down for him by his father. A worse done a done with less power of Dunning than Ontario Moggs, could not be conceived. His only strength lay in his helplessness. When he found that Mr. Newton had two friends with him, his lips were sealed. To ask for money at all was very painful to him, but to ask for it before three men was beyond his power. Ralph Newton, seeing something of this, felt that generosity demanded of him that he should sacrifice himself. I'm afraid you've come about your bill, Mr. Moggs, he said. Ontario Moggs, who, on the subject of trades unions at the Cheshire Cheese, could pour forth a flood of eloquence that would hold the room in rapt admiration, and then bring down a tumult of applause, now stammered out a half-expressed assent. As Mr. Newton was engaged, perhaps he had better call again. Well, thank ye, yes, it would be as well. "'But what's the total, Mr. Moggs?' Ontario could not bring himself to mention the figures, but handed a paper to our friend. "'Bless my soul, that's very bad,' said our friend. "'Over two hundred pounds for boots. "'How long can your father give me?' "'He's a little pressed just at present,' whispered Moggs. "'Yes, and he has my bill, which he was forced to take up at Christmas. "'It's quite true.' Moggs said not a word, though he had been especially commissioned to instruct the debtor that his father would be forced to apply through his solicitor unless he should receive at least half the amount due before the end of the next week. Tell your father that I will certainly call within the next three days and tell him what I can do, or at least what I can't do. You are sure you won't take a cigar? Moggs was quite sure that he wouldn't take a cigar and retired, thanking Ralph as though some excellent arrangement had been made which would altogether prevent further difficulties. "'That's the softest chap I ever saw,' said Lieutenant Cox. "'I wish my fellows would treat me like that,' said Captain Fuchs. "'But I never knew a fellow have the luck that Newton has. "'I don't suppose I owe a tenth of what you do.' "'That's your idea of luck?' said Ralph. "'Well, yes.' I owe next to nothing, but I'll be banged if I can get anything done for me without being dunned up to my very eyes. You know that chap of Neefit's? I'm blessed if he didn't ask me whether I meant to settle last year's bill before he should send me home a couple of cords I ordered. Now I don't owe Neefit twenty pounds, if all was told. What did you do? asked Lieutenant Cox. I just walked out of the shop. Now I shall see whether they're sent or not. They tell me there's a fellow down at Rugby makes just as well as Neefit, and never bothers you at all. What do you owe Neefit, Newton?' "'Untold sums.' "'But how much, really?' "'Don't you hear me say the sums are untold?' "'Oh, damn it, I don't understand that. I'm never dark about anything of that kind. I'll go bail it's more than five times what I do.' Very likely. If you had given your orders generously, as I have done, you would have been treated nobly. What good has a man in looking at twenty pounds on his books? Of course he must get in the small sums. I suppose there's something in that, said the captain thoughtfully. At this moment the conversation was interrupted by the entrance of another emissary, an emissary from that very establishment to which they were alluding. It was Ralph Newton's orders that no one should ever be denied to him when he was really in his rooms. He had fought the battle long enough to know that such denials create unnecessary animosity. And then, as he said, they were simply the resources of a coward. It was the duty of a brave man to meet his enemy face to face. Fortune could never give him the opportunity of doing that pleasantly in the field, as might happen any day to his happy friends, Captain Fuchs and Lieutenant Cox. But he was determined that he would accustom himself to stand fire, and that, therefore, he would never run away from a dun. Now there slipped very slowly into the room that most mysterious person who was commonly called Herr Bawa, much to the astonishment of the three young gentlemen as the celebrated cutter of leather had never previously been seen by either of them elsewhere than standing silent at his board in Neefit's shop with his knife in his hands. They looked at one another, and the two military gentlemen thought that Mr. Neefit was very much in earnest when he sent Bawa to look for his money. Mr. Neefit was very much in earnest, but on this occasion his emissary had not come for money. "'What, Herr Bauer, is that you?' said Ralph, making the best he could of the name. "'Is there anything wrong at the shop?' The German looked slowly round the room, and then handed to the owner of it a little note without a word. Ralph read the note to himself. It was written on one of the shop bills, and ran as follows. "'Have you thought of what I was saying?' If so, I should be happy to see Mr. Newton either in Conduit Street or at Alexandrina Cottage. There was neither signature nor date. Ralph knew what he was called upon to do, as well as though four pages of an elaborate epistle had been indicted to him. And he knew, too, that he was bound to give an answer. He asked the hare to sit down and prepared to write an answer at once he offered the hare a glass of brandy, which the hare swallowed at a gulp. He handed the hare a cigar, which the hare pocketed, and in gratitude for the latter favor, some inarticulate grunt of thanks was uttered. Ralph at once wrote his reply, while the two friends smoked, looked on, and wondered. Dear Mr. Neefit, I will be with you at eleven to-morrow morning. Yours most truly, Ralph Newton. This he handed with another glass of brandy to the hare. The hare swallowed the second glass, as he would have done a third if it had been offered to him, and then took his departure. That was another done, eh, Newton? asked the lieutenant. What a conjurer you are, said Ralph. I never heard of his sending Bawa out before, said the captain. He never does under two hundred and fifty pounds, said Ralph. It's a mark of the greatest respect. If I wore nothing but brown cords, like you, I never should have seen the hair here. I never had a pair of brown cords in my life, said the offended captain. After this the conversation fell away, and the two warriors went off to their military occupations at the horse-guards, where, no doubt, the Commander-in-Chief was waiting for them with impatience. Ralph Newton had much to think of, and much that required thinking of at once. Did he mean to make an offer to Clary Underwood? Did he mean to take Polly Neefit and her twenty thousand pounds? Did he mean to marry at all? Did he mean to go to the dogs? Had he ever in his life seen anybody half so beautiful as Mary Bonner? what was he to say to Mr. Moggs? How was he to manage about that five hundred pounds which Horsball would demand of him in September? In what terms could he speak to Neefit of the money due both for breeches and the loan in the event of his declining Polly? And then, generally, how was he to carry on the war? He was thoroughly disgusted with himself as he thought of all the evil that he had done and of the good which he had omitted to do. While he was yet at college, Sir Thomas had been anxious that he should be called to the bar, and had again and again begged of him to consent to this as a commencement of his life in London. But Ralph had replied, and had at last replied with so much decision, that Sir Thomas had abandoned the subject, that as it was out of the question that he should ever make money at the bar, the fact of his being called would be useless to him. He argued that he need not waste his life because he was not a lawyer. It was not his intention to waste his life. He had a sufficient property of his own at once, and must inherit a much larger property later in life. He would not be called to the bar, nor would he go into the army, nor would he go abroad for any lengthened course of travelling. He was fond of hunting but he would keep his hunting within measure. Surely an English private gentleman might live to some profit in his own country. He would go out in honors and take a degree, and then make himself happy among his books. Such had been his own plan for himself at twenty-one. At twenty-two he had quarreled with the tutor at his college and taken his name off the books without any degree. About this, too, he had argued with Sir Thomas, expressing a strong opinion that a university degree was, in England, of all pretenses, the most vain and hollow. At twenty-three he began his career at the Moonbeam, with two horses, and from that day to this hunting had been the chief aim of his life. During the last winter he had hunted six days a week, assuring Sir Thomas, however, that at the end of that season his wild oats would have been sown as regarded that amusement, and that henceforth he should confine himself to two days a week. Since that he had justified the four horses which still remained at the moonbeam by the alleged fact that horses were drugs in April, but would be pearls of price in November. Sir Thomas could only expostulate, and when he did so his late ward and present friend, though he was always courteous, would always argue. Then he fell, as was natural, into intimacies with such men as Cox and Fuchs. There was no special harm either in Cox or Fuchs, but no one knew better than did Ralph Newton himself that they were not such friends as he had promised himself when he was younger. Fathers, guardians, and the race of old friends generally, hardly ever give sufficient credit to the remorse which young men themselves feel when they gradually go astray. They see the better as plainly as do their elders, though they so often follow the worse, as not infrequently do the elders also. Ralph Newton passed hardly a day of his life without a certain amount of remorse, in that he had not managed himself better than he had done, and was now doing. He knew that fortune had been very good to him, and that he had hitherto wasted all her gifts; and now there came the question whether it was as yet too late to retrieve the injury which he had done. He did believe, not even as yet doubting his power to do well, that everything might be made right, only that his money difficulties pressed him so hardly. He took pen and paper and made out a list of his debts, Heading the catalogue with Mr. Horsball of the Moonbeam. The amount, when added together, came to something over four thousand pounds, including a debt of three hundred to his brother, the parson. Then he endeavoured to value his property, and calculated that if he sold all that was remaining to him, he might pay what he owed, and have something, about fifty pounds per annum, left to live upon till he should inherit his uncle's property but he doubted the accuracy even of this, knowing that new and unexpected debts will always crop up when the day of settlement arrives. Of course he could not live upon fifty pounds a year. It would have seemed to him to be almost equally impossible to live upon four times fifty pounds. He had given Sir Thomas a promise that he would not raise money on posto bits on his uncle's life, and heretofore he had kept that promise, He thought that he would be guilty of no breach of promise were he to obtain funds, telling Sir Thomas of his purpose, and asking the lawyer's assistance, but he knew that if he did this, all his chance of future high prosperity would be at an end. His uncle might live these twenty years, and in that time he, Ralph, might quite as readily die. Money might no doubt be raised but this could only be done at a cost which would be utterly ruinous to him. There was one way out of his difficulty. He might marry a girl with money. A girl with money had been offered to him, and a girl, too, who was very pretty and very pleasant, but then to marry the daughter of a breeches-maker. And why not? He had been teaching himself all his life to despise conventionalities, he had ridiculed degrees, he had laughed at the rank and standing of a barrister. The rank is, but the guinea stamp, the man the goad for all that. How often had he declared to himself and others, that should be his motto through life, and might not he be as much a man, and would not his metal be as pure, with Polly Neefit for his wife, as though he were to marry a duchess? As for love, he thought that he could love Polly dearly. He knew that he had done some wrong in regard to poor Clary, but he by no means knew how much wrong he had done. A single word of love, which had been so very much to her in her innocence, had been so little to him who was not innocent. If he could allow himself to choose out of all women he had ever seen, he would, he thought, instigated rather by the ambition of having the loveliest woman in the world for his wife than by any love, have endeavored to win Mary Bonner as his own. But that was out of the question. Mary Bonner was as poor as himself, and much as he admired her, he certainly could not tell himself that he loved her. Polly Neefit would pull him through all his difficulties. Nevertheless, he could not make up his mind to ask Polly Neefit to be his wife. "'but he must make up his mind "'either that he would "'or that he would not. "'He must see Mr. Neefit "'on the morrow, "'and within the next few days "'he must call on Mr. Moggs "'unless he broke his word, "'and in two months' time "'he must have five hundred pounds "'for Mr. Horsball. "'Suppose he were to go to Sir Thomas, "'tell his whole story without reserve, "'and ask his old friend's advice. "'Everything without reserve "'he could not tell.' He could say nothing to the father of that scene on the lawn with Clarissa, but of his own pecuniary difficulties and of Mr. Neefit's generous offer he was sure that he could tell the entire truth. He did go to Southampton Buildings, and after some harsh language between himself and Mr. Stem, Sir Thomas being away at the time, he managed to make an appointment for nine o'clock that evening at his late guardian's chambers. At nine o'clock precisely he found himself seated with Sir Thomas, all among the books in Southampton buildings. Perhaps you'll have a cup of tea, said Sir Thomas. Stem, give us some tea. Ralph waited till the tea was handed to him, and Stem was gone. Then he told his story. He told it very fairly, as against himself, He brought out his little account and explained to the lawyer how it was that he made himself out to be worth fifty pounds a year, and no more. "'Oh, heavens, what a mess you have made of it,' said the lawyer, holding up both his hands. "'No doubt I have,' said Ralph. "'A terrible mess. But as I now come to you for advice, hear me out to the end. You can say nothing as to my folly which I do not know already.' Go on, said Sir Thomas, go on, I hear you. It may however be remarked, by the way, that when an old gentleman in Sir Thomas's position is asked his advice under such circumstances, he ought to be allowed to remark that he had prophesied all these things beforehand. I told you so is such a comfortable thing to say, and when an old gentleman has taken much fruitless trouble about a young gentleman, he ought at least not to be interrupted in his remarks as to that young gentleman's folly. But Ralph was energetic, and, knowing he had a point before him, would go on with his story. And now, he said, I am coming to a way of putting these things right, which has been suggested to me. You won't like it, I know, but it would put me on my legs. Raising money on your expectations, said Sir Thomas. No, that is what I must come to if this plan don't answer. Anything will be better than that, said Sir Thomas. Then Ralph dashed at the suggestion of marriage without further delay. You have heard of Mr. Neefit, the breeches-maker? It so happened that Sir Thomas never had heard of Mr. Neefit. Well, he is a tradesman in Conduit Street. He has a daughter, and he will give her twenty thousand pounds. You don't mean to run away with a breeches-maker's daughter, ejaculated Sir Thomas. Certainly not. I shouldn't get the twenty thousand pounds if I did. Then he explained it all, how Neefit had asked him to the house, and offered him the girl, how the girl herself was as pretty and nice as a girl could be, and how he thought, though as to that he expressed himself with some humility, that were he to propose to her the girl might perhaps take him. I dare say she would, said Sir Thomas. Well, you know it all now. In her way she has been educated. Nefit Pierre is utterly illiterate and ignorant. He is an honest man, as vulgar as he can be, or rather as unlike you and me, which is what men mean when they talk of vulgarity, and he makes the best of breaches. Neefit Meere is worse than the father, being cross and ill-conditioned, as far as I can see. Polly is as good as gold, and if I put a house over my head with her money, of course her father and her mother will be made welcome there. Your daughters would not like to meet them, but I think they could put up with Polly. Now you know about all that I can tell you. Ralph had been so rapid, so energetic, and withal so reasonable, that Sir Thomas at this period of the interview was unable to refer to any of his prophecies. What advice was he to give? Should he adjure this young man not to marry the breeches-maker's daughter because of the blood of the Newtons and the expected estate? Or were he to do so even on the score of education and general unfitness, he must suggest some other mode of means of living. But how could he advise the future Newton of Newton Priory to marry Polly Neefit? The Newtons had been at Newton Priory for centuries, and the men Newtons had always married ladies, as the women Newtons had always either married gentlemen or remained unmarried. Sir Thomas, too, was, of his nature and by all his convictions, opposed to such matches. "'You have hardly realized,' said he, "'what it would be to have such a father-in-law and such a mother-in-law, or probably such a wife.' yes i have i have realised all that of course if you have made up your mind but i have not made up my mind sir thomas i must make it up before 11 o'clock tomorrow morning because i must be then with neefit by appointment at this moment i am so much in doubt that i am almost inclined to toss up i would sooner cut my throat said sir thomas forgetting his wisdom amidst the perplexities of his position Not quite that, Sir Thomas. I suppose you mean to say that anything would be better than such a marriage? I don't suppose you care for the girl, said Sir Thomas crossly. I do not feel uneasy on that score. If I did not like her, and think that I could love her, I would have nothing to do with it. She herself is charming, though I should lie if I were to say that she were a lady. And the father offered her to you? most distinctly, and named the fortune. Knowing your own condition as to money? Almost exactly, so much so that I do not doubt he will go on with it when he knows everything. He had heard about my uncle's property, and complimented me by saying that I am a gentleman. He does not deserve to have a daughter, said Sir Thomas. I don't know about that. According to his lights he means to do the best he can for her, and indeed I think myself that he might do worse. She will probably become Mrs. Newton of Newton Priory if she marries me, and the investment of Neefit's twenty thousand pounds won't be so bad. Nothing on earth can make her a lady. I'm not so sure of that, said Ralph. Nothing on earth can make her mother a lady. But of Polly I should have high hopes you, however, are against it? Certainly. Then what ought I to do? Sir Thomas rubbed the calf of his leg and was silent. The only advice you have given me hitherto was to cut my throat, said Ralph. No, I didn't. I don't know what you're to do. You've ruined yourself, that's all. But there is a way out of the ruin. In all emergencies there is a better and a worse course. What now is the better course? You don't know how to earn a shilling, said Sir Thomas. No, I don't, said Ralph Newton. Sir Thomas rubbed his face and scratched his head, but he did not know how to give advice. You have made your bed and you must lie upon it, he said. Exactly, but which way am I to get into it, and which way shall I get out? Sir Thomas could only rub his face and scratch his head. I thought it best to come and tell you everything, said Ralph. That was all very well, but Sir Thomas would not advise him to marry the breeches-maker's daughter. It is a matter, Sir Thomas said at last, in which you must be guided by your own feelings. I wish it were otherwise. I can say no more. Then Ralph took his leave and wandered all round St. James's Park and the purlieus of Westminster till midnight, endeavoring to make up his mind and building castles in the air as to what he would do with himself and how he would act if he had not brought himself into so hopeless a mess of troubles end of chapter eight recording by arnold banner thurmond north carolina